Yeah, um, I've been, you know, one of the, the, uh, the line of trash that I remember everybody talking about the Marvel app, whether it's the Unlimited or the, the per-issue one that I've got, is that um, the talking point seemed to be, if Marvel published it ever, it's up there. And I find that is not actually true. There are certain things you really got to look for it. I mean, we're talking about some very esoteric stuff here, but uh, yeah, they don't necessarily, they're not as bad as DC. I'll, I'll give them that. You know, they no. are nowhere near as bad as DC, but they do have some pretty big gaps. There are some gaps, uh, but they're filling them. I mean, every week you see, they'll, every week you get an email that says, hey, here's what's new in Marvel Unlimited. And they have a bunch of the new stuff because, you know, they, they do, they hold the new stuff for six months. Yes. Um, but then they'll, they'll give you a list of other stuff that's 60s, 70s, 80s, that they're, or sometimes 90s that they're just adding to the app. So, in fact, they just upgraded the Spectacular Spider-Man, uh, which, which was woeful. And I just noticed the other day, because I was going to look at Web of Spider-Man, it's woeful. And you would think of anything that kind of, you know, your, your marquee character, you would have one of his major, your series, but they've literally got, let's see, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 14, 21, 28, 35. They have 36 issues of Web of Spider-Man. Didn't that go for like 60 or 70 or something like that? Or... Oh, at least 129. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Boy, is I wrong. Okay. Oh, wait, no, no, no. What am I saying? I'm thinking of adjectiveless Spider-Man. That was the one oh, that yeah. had like 70, 80 issues. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah I don't even know if they've because I've never even gone back to look at that because I was never a fan of that series. But yeah, they don't have a lot of web. They don't have a lot of spectacular. And they're adding to it. There's more than there used to be, but... Uh, there is such a thing as an, like, ill-conceived idea, especially in comics. Mm -hmm. And my sense is that, you know, it sounded great in, in whatever pitch meeting that somebody did. Hey, yeah, let's have a new Spider-Man title. It's the 90s. We can support it. And guess what? Todd McFarlane is going to be writing it. It's going to be amazing. Look, mm -hmm. it sounded great at the time, I'm sure. But history, I think, kind of spoke on that in pretty short order. You know, it um, it was just a bad idea. It was a bad, bad I, I idea. Would, uh, I would counter you and say it didn't take history to speak. <laughs> I think it was pretty obvious from the first issue or two that it was not a good book. Um, I think they did it because they needed, they were trying to keep him and that's what it took to keep him. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course he left him anyway. Yeah. But that's yeah, what they should have done is once he left, which was what, 14 issues in something like that. Yeah. They should have just, they should have just folded that book and just, moved on with whatever they had but that first five they did a five-part story arc with a lizard in there that's just god-awful that very first story arc is hideous and I, well i mean i'll somewhat justify it that todd mcfarlane the penciler was pretty well experienced by that time he was yes. you could say he was an industry veteran whereas todd mcfarlane the writer was totally wet behind the ears and um now, uh, mind you, my defense can only go so far. The <laughs> yeah. reality is that you're tr you're trying to turn the street level, not quite two fisted kind of character, but this very street level, sympathetic, relatable sort of superhero title into this weird 
creepy sort of like monster horror movie sort of a thing. And I don't care if you're if this is the first comic book you've ever written or if you've been doing this since comics were created, that's a bad idea. Okay. Yeah. Don't need to do that. So yeah. let's um, create a tonal mismatch first time out of the box. Well, it, it did, but actually, you know what? Uh, there's a, there's a follow up to that. Actually, I want to save it for our discussion about spider girl, but um, okay. Uh, yeah, no, I do. I do have a follow up on, uh, on that, but uh uh, speaking of, uh, do you want to get a drink or run to the restroom or do anything like that before we get going? No, I'm good. I'm gonna. I know you've got a little bit of a deadline, so. <laughs> yeah, I did. I just I was able to push it back a tiny bit, but you know, okay, mm, we do what we can. So, um, all right, I've got my orange vanilla Coke here. Ooh, yes. Vape yes. juice is topped up, so I think we're ready. So. <laughs> all right. All right. So then, in uh, three, two. One. Magnus punches reality presented by two true freaks I'm your host Magnus and guys what I do is accumulate a vast amount of podcasting debts <laughs> I've got promises uh, that I've made to so many people uh, it's it's not an exaggeration and you know what to be you know just to be fair to myself I've begun paying some of those debts off for example, at, by the time that you that you guys are hearing this, I have released an episode featuring Scott Gardner and myself talking about 2008's first Iron Man movie. And guys, you need to understand this is a conversation that Scott Gardner and I have been having for something like six or eight months leading up to that to the time that we actually recorded that episode. That was a debt that had been outstanding for quite some time, and uh, so. My word is my bond, eventually. And so what I've been doing, I've tried to make a sort of a priority of doing this, is all of these people that I've made promises to, or threats to, for that matter, uh, I'm going to have you on the show to talk about X, Y, and Z. You're going to be here. We're going to talk about it. It's going to be fun. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be big, and we're going to have so much fun it's, and, and all that stuff. So take today, for example. You see, guys? Years and years and years ago, I launched a sort of mega series of Trinus Magnus Punches Reality called Women in Comics. Now, I was uh, basically I was casting about to find a title for this series that I thought would be in no way demeaning and Women in Comics was just about the best I could do. So what I wanted to do was talk about a crap ton of female-centric comics because, 
I guess by way of explanation, I had a lot more faith in my fellow man back in those days than I do today. But uh, anyway, that was really the, the high concept behind that mega series. Now, there was an unfortunate turn of events. I had a certain guest star on for a certain episode of that mega series. We were supposed to talk about three comics. That was the promise that I made to my guest. This is what we're going to talk about. And I might add, through no fault of my guests, it didn't exactly work out that way. We were only able to get through one comic book because, in case it hasn't become apparent by now, I'm a little bit of a rambler. <clears throat> so, the promise that I made to this guest at that time is someday, I know not when, but someday, I will have you back on my show so that we can finish this as intended. And I will give my guest credit, at no time did he ever say, yeah, right, fat chance. But uh, I, history can be a cruel judge sometimes. I think he may have been well within his rights to say that. But uh, maybe it's time I stop speaking in, in uh, riddles. The, the comic book that we were talking about ages and ages and ages ago was Spider-Girl. The promise I made was that we would talk about Spider-Girl numbers one, two, and three, and as stated... We only talked about Spider-Girl number one. So the promise I made to the guest of that episode was that I would I would have him back. And, of course, I refer to award-winning radio host and official ethics officer of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, <laughs> former Dinner for Geeks co-founder, co-host, and just all around nice guy, Scott Rifen. Welcome back to the show. How are you, sir? Good evening, Your Holiness. How hangs the hammer? Uneasy lies the head that wears the crown, or so I'm told. Um, I got to tell you, Scott, uh, I, I, I've always wanted to kind of put you on the spot just before we get into the comics here. I've always wanted to put you on the spot and 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 say this. You know, there was a time. This is this was years ago, but there was a time uh, when I. I did tech support for a web hosting company located here in Houston, of which there are very few. So any of you detectives out there, you'll probably be able to figure out which company I used to work for. Now, here's the thing, uh, Scott, this is the sort of job that somebody calls you up when their website is all borked and then you unbork their website. That's basically the way that it works. But it's also the kind of job that when you're doing it, you're doing it. And when you're not, you're not, you know. I was always one of those people that I believe in leaving work at work, right? When I came home from work, what I did not do is look around on the internet, find broken websites, and then help people get them back up and running. I did not do that. That was not a hobby of mine. No. You, however, have gone in a slightly different direction. You've got a thriving career as an award-winning radio host, and then as your downtime, you have excellence in podcasting, you come home and talk more. I can only describe your lifestyle as extreme. Yeah. How, how is this possible? And I guess why? Well, note, note that my output is not what it once was. And, and there's a reason for that. And simply put, I noticed that my podcasting duties were starting to interfere fear with what I thought was my ability to produce a quality show where it paid off. Right. And, and uh, so I, I've, that's the biggest reason that I've cut back tremendously on what I do, because it really, you can 
shortchange yourself when you do go home and do the same thing you're supposed to be doing when you're getting paid the money for it. So, uh, and you know, podcasting is not exactly a, a paying endeavor for me. Uh, um, so, although the strange thing is that my company that I work for, iHeartMedia, has now gotten into podcasting and they think it's the best thing ever. So, hmm. while I've had to reduce my output in one respect, uh, my show has become a podcast. And so I released three hour long or three uh, versions of you know, one version of each hour for my show each day on podcast. So I'm actually te technically producing more podcasts than I ever have before, but I'm just doing it within the confines of work. Ah, okay. How about that? All right. Well, uh, the comparisons between you and a certain other conservative broadcaster deepen because apparently he does quite the same thing. So, <laughs> yeah. The difference is, I don't. I doubt he has to do it himself. <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. You're right. No, you got me there. So, yeah. um, I had a I had a guest on the show the other day, and uh, usually I don't take a lot of guests. No, unlike a certain other conservative radio host, I don't take a lot of guests because I rely on what I'm doing uh, to generally fuel the show. But a friend asked if they could put a guest on the show. I said, yeah, it could be interesting. Interesting discussion. And uh, they tried to call in, and the guy missed the call. And I said, well, they sent me a note. I said, well, how, what's the procedure for getting on the show? And I said, well, I have the screener. His name is Righty, and he's my hand. That's all I got. <laughs> so, you know, just you got to wait, and you got to take – you, you got to wait your turn in line, and I'll get to you. But I can't just – I can't stop the show to sit and screen your call. Sorry. <laughs> Okay, well that's that's fair enough. Yeah. Now there was a um, not to get off topic here. More this is oh what to be the hell? Of, Let's get off topic. Well, it's kind of a bridge. Um, <laughs> there was a recent episode, uh, kind of an explosive episode, in fact, a recent episode of uh, of uh, Dinner for Geeks where you made uh, you were oh. you were basically making uh, another kind of a separate point entirely. But you you did make the point of that when it's known that you're the Star Wars fan in the room. Yes. Everyone comes to you and they say, hey, man, what do you think about Star Wars? Yeah. And I would assume that the same thing holds true because you do, a, I would say, a, a, a pretty political uh, radio program. I would assume that since you're kind of the sort of the guru in the room, people probably come up to you. They, they ask either a lot of questions about Star Wars or they ask maybe a lot of questions about politics. So. Yes. Just to kind of put that in the background, this is sort of a lead-in for saying um, my memory of how things went down with uh, getting you on the show last time to talk about Spider-Girl was that you were pretty well chomping at the bit to do it. Uh, and what I took from that at the time is that, you know, there was this sort of unspoken of, uh, attitude of, thank God I can talk about something other than these two things. <laughs> what is it about Spider-Girl that, that interests you or captures your imagination? You know what's funny about Spider-Girl? And I'm glad you brought that up because we're in an era where they're doing all this gender swapping and there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, social consideration being paid in comics. And they, they're, they're, they're really, they wind up being more political than anything else. Spider-Girl, and, and the thing is, people like me who criticize that kind of thing get branded as sexist, you know, bigot, all that other stuff. But yeah. the truth is, when I pick up Spider-Girl, it's natural. It yes. feels natural. It feels 
is real. In fact, the whole M2 is something that I really like, but Spider Girl is the anchor to the M2. I mean, let's let's not kid ourselves as, as cool as the other stuff is. Uh, and and I, you and I both, both I think, share a passion for Spider-Man. Yes. Um, but Spider-Girl is that promise of let's go into the future. Uh, it is also a little bit of, we always love Peter Parker. And God knows we always wanted things to work out right for Peter Parker. And they so seldom do in the books. Yeah. And this is kind of, we jump forward and we find things did go okay for Peter Parker. He's doing all right. And now he's got a daughter and she's kind of testing the waters. We're back in high school again, which is, I think, some of the most fertile uh, grounds for telling Spider-Man stories. Um, we've got a cast of characters that are brand new. We've got another cast of characters that are evolution of the former characters the the m2 is a wonderful thing to me it is more the logical the successor to 70s and 80s marvel than anything else out there but uh but spider girl really primarily it tells great classic style spider-man stories and the other thing again is that it, it lets us know that peter parker turned out all right well that actually um that that brings up something that I that I wanted to ask you about, and I promise we'll get into the specific issues in just a moment. But I mean, okay. we, we we've got a good thing going here. Um, oh yeah. Re uh, rereading the um, what I did today at the time that we record this. Uh, what I did today was I just said, you know what, forget the whole thing. I'm gonna I'm gonna reread all three issues because technically our mandate is issue uh, our, our mandate revolves around issues number two and three, but I wanted it had been a long time since I read the first one, so I just wanted to get that as context. And, uh, and I got to tell you, you know, I was just, you know, I, I, I thought this was going to be a little bit of a slog, you know, and I was really mm. enjoying myself. It, it, what it reminded me, and this may be controversial to you, and I want to get your, your take on this. Okay. But what it reminded me of was the Lee Ditko stuff. I was saying it, it, no, that no. same, no. that same energy. Don't you think? <laughs> no, no, it's, no, this, well, you said the, might be controversial it's not controversial at all it takes me back to in the early 80s i would buy all the spider titles including marvel tales you know what marvel tales was yeah the reprints right for yeah for those who don't, don't know they reprinted spider-man stuff and at one point during the the run right in my prime comic buying years i was lucky enough for them to restart at amazing fantasy 15 and start moving on from there so in a very real sense, yeah, at, at 12, 13, 14, in real time, I'm reading month to month the Lee Ditko stuff. And I, and I loved it. I, was, I had such a blast reading it. And this Spider-Girl series is, is very much Lee Ditko. It, it, no doubt about that. No, it's something I thought about saying earlier, but I didn't pull it out of the, out of the holster yet. When you threw it out there, it's like, yeah, no, that's exactly what I was thinking. Oh, this okay. is very much in the flavor, in the vein of that Lee Ditko stuff that is so lovable. Well, you know, it, it's kind of funny because here again, I, this is another parallel step on the sort of delayed by about 12 or 14 years lives that you and I seem to have led with each other. Um, <laughs> I was getting into, well, trying. I was tr triple underlining, trying to get into Spider-Man. But unfortunately for me, at the time that I was trying, it was all about the clone song. That was the thing that Marvel was, uh, was doing at the time. But my, what got me to that point was uh, 
My old man is not a comic book guy, not even remotely, but this guy has this weird, freaky, uncanny ability. It's like this is his mutant ability to pick out a good comic book. I, I've never seen anything like it, but he can just pick a, something up at random, and he used to do this. We would go to the comic book store, he would just start grabbing stuff, because he got a big bonus at work, and he wanted to do something nice for his son. And so that is how I came up. I forget the exact issue number, but Spider-Man Classics, number whatever, the first appearance of Mysterio. And I thought, okay, well, this is kind of old school. I'll just put that at the bottom. Uh, that was the last comic book I read in the big stack of stuff that I brought home. I probably was predominantly Batman because I was really a DC guy, even back then. But I finally got to that issue of, of uh, Spider-Man Classics. And I got to tell you, there are very few times, you know, and I love comics, don't get me wrong, but there, are, there have been very few times I've ever finished a comic book, flipped it back, and reread it instantly. But that time, <laughs> I did, because that was such a cool story. And I was very well aware of the fact that this is a reprint. This was originally published back in the 60s. I understood that. I was good at contextualizing even back then, but it's like, this is still objectively a good comic and yeah. that was where it started from and then of course you go from that to the clone saga hey so anyway thought I'd throw that yeah out. but but i will say this over time uh i think the spider girl series for me redeemed a bit of the clone saga hmm. okay um i, think, I, 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 think, I can actually uh, see and, I, and i'm not I was not a fan of the Clone Saga at all at the time. And by the way, I'm just I'm pulling it up now. 137 is when they Marvel Tales started reprinting, uh, at starting at uh, Amazing Fantasy 15 and moving forward from there. And uh, just it was really again it was really neat to be a kid and getting to read those original Spider Tales month to month, just like it would have happened in the 60s. It made me feel like I was around back in the 60s. That is a, um, and, and the other thing is, like, I, I don't remember Spider-Man classics hanging around that long. Marvel hmm. Tales did. I mean, they went, those oh, reprints yeah. lasted like... 200 submissions. Yeah, and that was, you would get, not everything, but you would get a massive chunk. I would say probably all of the 60s well into the 70s. Doesn't that sound about right? Uh, uh, definitely I mean I may have fallen off by by a certain point but yeah I mean we, we you got all of the Lee Ditko run which is what, about a little over three years I guess mm -hmm. and then uh, uh, you got into the Romita run pretty far too yeah alright well the um, the uh, our, our mandate for for the uh, for this episode is to talk about uh, Spider Girl uh, volume one Number two, and as fate would have it, I've actually got synopses uh, for both. So, um, you, uh, are you are you ready to get going, or do you have some yeah. more preamble? No, you do it. All right, cool. It's your world. All right, so um, this is uh, Spider-Girl, Volume 1, Number 2. Cover date is 1998. Editor-in-Chief is Bob Harris, which I must say was news to me. I thought this was a uh, Joe Casada joint by that time, but no, apparently it was still... Uh, Bob Bob Harris's gig. Writer is Tom DeFalco. Penciler is Pat Olive, which I had totally forgotten about, but I love Pat Olive, so this is definitely welcome. Inker is Al Williamson, who also is always welcome. Colorist uh, Christy Shield. Letterer Janice 
Chang. Uh, story is entitled Bedeviled? Question mark. Story synopsis is as follows. The issue begins a few weeks after the first one. I love synopses that begin that way. May is fighting <laughs> some thugs when her spider sense goes a little wonky as she notices a figure on a rooftop. Before she can find out who or what it is, she gets attacked by Crazy Eight. May begins to worry that she didn't think she would be facing off against a real supervillain. Still not up to superhero standards yet, May decides retreating would be her best chance at surviving. While recovering on, the, on a nearby rooftop as the thugs make their getaway, May gets waylaid by Dark Devil, a strange new version of Daredevil. Dark Devil identifies himself as a vigilante, just like May, but says the streets are not for the faint of heart and finds May lacking as a superhero. What an auspicious beginning. He then proceeds to attack her. He leaves her with an invitation to meet him at Pier 87 the following night if she truly believes herself ready to be a hero. Racing back home, she starts to feel more and more self-doubt, which as we all know is a completely foreign concept and anything to do with Spider-Man. No, Peter and, yeah. Uh, Peter and MJ both lie in their room, uh, thinking they're both thinking the same thing, thinking about what's happening with May. And the next morning, she overhears uh, them talking about Peter, mentioning some. God, this is an awkward sentence. Talking about Peter, mentioning something to May during their lunch date later that day. At school, May's friend Jimmy is accosted by the jock Moose Mansfield, right as Jimmy was about to ask May out on a date, we find out. When Coach Flash Thompson breaks up the two, Jimmy just walks away in a huff. Always the best way to attract a girl. May goes to meet her father at Midtown South Police Department, but only finds Phil Urich instead. He, oh, I see, part of the Clone Saga connection right there. He tells her about the webbing he found at, uh, at a crime scene back in the first issue. May asks him not to tell her father, and for some reason, Phil agrees to that. May and Peter then go to an awkward and silent lunch together. Back at MHS, Jimmy has agreed to fight Moose after school during May's absence, because she was off having lunch with Peter at the time. May takes, ma uh, takes matters into her own hands and traps Moose inside of a locker so that he'll miss the fight. Jimmy becomes uh, perturbed again since he thinks that May somehow did something to stop the fight and in the process possibly save his life. That evening, May makes her way to Pier 87 to see that Dark Devil's test is actually Crazy 8 and his thugs from the previous evening. She takes him on and holds her own for a while before he uses a sonic ball, which dis disrupts her equilibrium. May seems to retreat, which puts Crazy 8 at ease, but she comes back from behind and knocks him out. May gloats a little bit over his unconscious form before Dark Devil shows up, stating that he wants to save her from a funeral before leaving. The issue ends with May contemplating all of the complications that are now facing her, including having to fill her father's tights and his namesake. To be continued. So, boy, Scott, being as you're the guest of honor, as the guest of honor, why don't you take the lead? Where, where are you coming from with this issue? Well, I, first, let me just say I'm a little uncomfortable with the term uh, that May has to fill her father's tights, but... That having been said, um, I, I love the premise of this issue. I love how, you know, as you know, as we got into the 90s, more and more storytelling got a little more decompressed. And 
one thing I like about the Spider Girl title is it does take things and kind of let you live and breathe with them for a little bit. Not it's not too slow, yes. but it just it slows the pace down a little bit so that you can kind of savor all these great moments. And first off, introducing Crazy Eight, and then introducing Dark Devil. As much as I say that we slow down a little bit, I mean, think about all the things that do happen in this issue. We have a classic tale of Mm -hmm. self-doubt. We've got high school bullying, which is a staple of Lee Ditko. Uh, But then we've got the Peter Parker dynamic as well. And you've also got May solves problems in ways Peter doesn't solve problems or didn't solve problems back in the day. Uh, I don't think you would have seen some fight with Flash Thompson. Well, that first, that, I guess that's part of it. I'm jumping all over the place. I'm sorry. That's fine. Um, you wouldn't have seen him stow Flash Thompson in a locker to avoid the fight because he would have been the object of the fight. Right. Uh, May is not that person. May is a little bit popular. She's got nerdy friends, but so she's not just a clone of Spider-Man. You know, she's not Peter Parker turned into a girl. She is her own fully realized character. Yes. And uh, so she she doesn't do things the way people. It's not a replay of what happened, but it's the flavor and the tone of what happened. Um, but Dark Devil, so intriguing. And knowing that they did so much building on previous concepts with them, too, you sit back and the question, obviously, first you go, gosh, what happened to Matt Murdock? Mm-hmm. But over time, we know that eventually we find out much more about Dark Devil and it's it, it kind of blows your mind because it's, it's not really anything that you predicted at first, but um, just uh, the existence of dark devil showing up is shocking, surprising. It plays on what you're familiar with. It tantalizes you to think you may know what's coming, but you don't. Uh, there's so much in here. There really is. And, and it's funny because it's so dialogue heavy when you read it, and you don't even realize it's dialogue heavy because you're just going to town. You're just chewing up drama left mm-hmm. and right. Uh, they they have time for action. They have great moments. Crazy, I, I will say, Crazy Eight, never my favorite of the Spider-Girl villains. Um, but he was somebody who stuck around and had a presence that had, had a profound impact on the series as it went on. But uh, I, I think a great, again, bit of stage setting for what's to come later in this book. I'm glad, you know, th- there's so many times when you would pick up an issue of Spider-Girl. Were you buying this new on the rack when it came out? Uh, no, no, I wasn't. Uh, there were some things that were going on, but the short answer, no. <laughs> every every so often, you would get an issue that would end with the end for now. And you go, oh, no, they they did it again. They canceled it. And then it would get that reprieve, that last minute reprieve. And looking back at the body of things and how how long it took some of these reveals to take and how long it took to tell some of these tales. And again, the, the maturation and development of some of these characters, you just, you, you just have to be thankful that this thing actually got to go as long as it did, because it was never a sales winner. It was always just kind of a critical darling, but a great book. Well, and like the thing about it is, and if I'm wrong on this, I, I, I do want you to correct me, but um, my memory of where Marvel was in 1998 was that they were trying to pick up a lot of different pieces. And the thing that allowed Spider-Girl to exist was this mentality of let's just throw something against the wall and see what sticks. But that ended up maybe kind of working against the title because 
they're trying to find something that sticks and this isn't completely sticking. And so it always existed in this weird kind of, I can't say a uh, uh, peril of always being canceled, but it seems like cancellation was a conversation that was perpetually going to be had in two or three months. And I don't know, it was, um, that's my memory. Again, not reading this at the time, but it's like, I didn't know anyone who was reading this book who hated it. Everyone seemed to be an evangelist for it. But um, reading it all now, one of the things that I do really get into is the fact that um, there's a lot of purity of heart that's being implied here on May's part because literally every single major influence in her life is basically telling her this is a bad idea. What she's trying to yeah. do is a bad idea. Crazy Age yes. is demonstrating why it's a bad idea. Dark Devil yeah. is saying, yep. you're not dark and scary enough to be out here, so you need to go home. Mm-hmm. Um, I imagine this is a conversation she's had with her parents at least a few times by now. They don't want this life for her. They certainly don't want that life for themselves. And yet here she is helping people in uniform and out. And to me, what that says is there's there's a lot of purity of heart on May's part uh, that goes into this. She's basically overruling all of these different influences, not least of which is common sense. I mean, let's face it, you can get killed doing something like this because she believes that this is right. She's also doing the right thing out of costume as well and trying to forestall a fight between uh, uh, Moose and uh, what's the guy's name? David. Jimmy. Jimmy, sorry. Jimmy um, Yama. No, I was thinking Davida. Sorry, my bad. Yeah. Uh, Jimmy. Jimmy Yama, you're right. Uh, basically trying to forestall oh. a fight between those two. And um, these are things that she's basically facing a, uh, you know, remembering what things were really like back in the 90s. A different set of... Uh, yeah, because the 90s were big guns, bigger guns, uh, dark, conflicted heroes, anti-heroes... Uh, Wolverine and the Punisher were your heroes. Yes. Cable was a hero. Um, yeah, and this was these, these stories were more pure of heart. Character-wise, let's take what you're saying and boil it down to one word, which is responsibility. Yeah. This is this is who she is. And what's interesting about this is when she discovers she has powers, and again, to say she's not a clone of Peter Parker, just because we're setting a spider character in high school, it's it's not going to come out the same way remember when peter parker got his powers he went and tried to capitalize off him he was irresponsible he had to learn the lesson of responsibility right she has that sense of responsibility in place probably due to her upbringing uh the 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 deal is now that she's having to be dishonest against what she wants to be in order to do this thing that she feels is her responsibility and deep down, Peter knows this is her responsibility. This is her legacy. To If she has the power, she has to use them for good. Right. And the other thing, like, on that note, just to kind of uh, tangent off of that for just a minute, you know, I, I've always got the idea that I'm talking Peter Parker in the inner core of his soul. Mm-hmm. What would he have really wanted? And I think the answer to that is if you go back to Amazing... Just pick just some arbitrary time. Amazing Spider-Man 6, 7, or just whatever. 
knowing what you do, having lived through the experiences that you've had, would you still want to have had powers? And I think his answer to that may very well have been no. If, if there was a way to basically have that radioactive spider not bite him, he would have selected that, knowing what he does. Whereas, just to kind of tie this back to what you were saying, I get the idea that May, it's not necessarily that she would have always wanted to be a hero, although maybe, but she doesn't begrudge the reality of of her powers. It's like, okay, I've got powers. And so whenever you said that, you know, her, uh, Peter's first instinct was to capitalize, whereas May's first instinct was to uh, was to rescue, you know, and how all of that relates to the core issue for Spider-Man of responsibility. It's like, that is such an amazingly insightful uh, character thing for DeFalco to put into this. Yep. And I have no idea what DeFalco was getting paid per issue, but it couldn't have been enough. This is um, just the, the, the rock solid characters along with, the imagination that is dripping off of every single page of this thing, you know, mm -hmm. dark devil, spider girl, uh, coach flash Thompson, the, yes. the, the challenges of high school life as it was in the late nineties when I was in high school. And I'm here to say, this is, this is it. And, um, <laughs> you know, this is, this is just, this is just a, a great concept, but amazing execution. You know, that's what I think. Yeah. Amazing, spectacular, sensational, sensational. all of those. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, oh, and and I guess we should close close the issue summary out uh, unless you have more. Um, oh no, that's not that issue. Never mind. I'm skipping ahead. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'll, um, I'll well, there is a little bit. Uh, okay. You know, I've, I, I, there's honestly, I can go for hours about any comic book, but. You know, my parting shot for Spider-Girl number two is going to be um, if any of you listeners who are reading along with this, uh, just consider this a challenge. OK, what I want you to do is count up the number of pages where it's Spider-Girl in costume on the page fighting somebody and then count up the number of pages where it's uh, May. She's in school and she's doing high school 90s teenager type stuff. And just value the fact that this, this is not the work of an accident, okay? There is some very careful and very deliberate pacing, notwithstanding how much dialogue there is per page, and in some cases it is quite a lot, or the amount of text on a page anyway, there is quite a lot. But the pacing of this issue, just whenever you look at it on a, if there's a way, like on my app, what I can do is just hit the, you know, the select your page uh, tool, and this will mm -hmm. show you a thumbnail of all of the different pages. And then realize this has a, a few extra pages beyond what the usual uh, comic book does. This is 21, 22, so 23 pages. This is the work of somebody who knows what they're doing. This is very careful pacing. Everything that's happening in every single panel leads to something else that's happening on the next page. This is the work of a master. And uh, I just love, number one, this comic in general, but the pacing in this issue, this is truly good craftsmanship. So, You want to talk really scary. It's 22 pages of story. Mm -hmm. Get ready for this. It's seven pages of Spider-Girl in action, a transition page that's kind of half Spider-Girl, half May, 
seven pages of May, seven more pages of Spider-Girl out. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and, and throughout, not, not only a story being developed, character is being developed. And not yes. just May. And, no. um, you know, um, so anyway, like I said, I could sit here fanning DeFalco's balls on this all day long, but uh, <laughs> we... Maybe we should we should get a move on. Do you have any parting shots on uh, Sp- uh, Spider Girl? No, uh, but I I think if you are planning on Finny DeFalco's balls, I do believe they used to sell those at Sharper Image. The ball fans. <laughs> so, okay, all right. Brookstone may have them. So, <laughs> all right. But you know the other. I do want to say this one parting shot on here. You you mentioned Pat Olive, who I think is kind of a subtle MVP on this. If you, you recall, the other big thing that I know Pat Olive for is Ooh, yeah. doing Kurt Busick's uh, Untold Tales, Untold baby. Tales, yeah, which is, to me, a, a lot of the same flavor because it, it's, you, you know that series, it's it's placed in between moments in the original Lee run. So when you're evoking classics Lee Ditko Spider-Man, kind of that's what I reach to. When I think of that, and and so that that visual helps me out a lot. Yeah, and they he even had a um, kind of a, a a proto moose in one of those issues, like the second or the third one. Mm-hmm. Every time I see moose in in these issues, that's the first thing I think of that that jock bully that Peter at first tried to sabotage, but then tried to help because he found out mm-hmm. he was being abused at home. And um, you know, it had a lot of that kind of social conscience stuff that Buziak is kind of famous for, but yeah. Um, to me, the real star. Of, this is the this is one of the few uh, comics that Kurt Busiek has ever has ever written. Where I'm actually tempted to say, you know what? Look, I'm happy that Busiek read it. I, it's a great job. I'm glad you did it. This really is Pat Olive's book, at least for me. You know. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, that is a great. And uh, you're right. It is definitely kind of a spiritual forerunner. In a weird kind of way to uh, to Spider Girl, I I do agree with you on that. That's for sure. So uh, now getting into uh, this is a uh, uh, Spider Girl number three, and uh, whatever next month, same creative team. Story synopsis for what is this exactly? Ah, uh, yeah, Fun and Games with a Fantastic Five. So story synopsis for Fun and Games with a Fantastic Five is as follows. Peter is up for an award directly from the mayor, which is the topic of discussion at breakfast, a subject I'm going to be circling back to in just a moment. May vows to be at the ceremony in time. Famous last words. At school, May is talking with Davida Kirby when Jimmy Yama breaks into the conversation. He asks May if she'd like to go to the new Fantastic Five... God, this is really weird. The new Fantastic Five showing... At their base. Before May can even answer, Moose Manfield shows up with Brad Miller in order to mock Jimmy. However, Brad convinces Moose to back off and says how both groups of May's friends should go to the exhibit after school. They all do just that. They make it there after school, and things seem to be going fine enough until a portal shows up in the middle of the room, as they so often do. They do. Out- yeah, like I, it's like I can't even drive down the freeway sometimes. But anyway, uh, out of this dimensional gateway swaggers Spiral. It turns out he's looking for a negative zone device, 
so he can get back to his right dimension. And it's actually, this is a story point I do actually want to harp upon in just a little while, but we'll circle back to that. As May begins to engage him as Spider-Girl, the Fantastic Five intervene, and they end up jumping the gun by assuming that she, Spider-Girl, is working with Spiral because that's such an obvious and logical conclusion to jump to. Before things can get straightened out, Spiral puts the public in danger and, and is able to get away as Reed Richards saves the crowd. May is also able to change back into her normal clothes before the Fantastic Five can capture her. As she makes her way home, she's stopped by Phil Urich, her father's partner at Midtown South Police Station. They have a conversation where he reveals to her that he once tried to be a superhero. Again, Shades of the Clone Saga. May contemplates mm -hmm. why he may have told her uh, this a bit later on as she watches for the Fantastic Five to go after Spiral. When they finally do, she follows them to the CD Warehouse 317 in the CD Warehouse District and assists them in their fight. <laughs> the CD Warehouse District. <laughs> I'm telling you, dude, Marvel, the Marvel Universe is full of those. So Spiral's <laughs> able to get the upper hand, and May, along with Franklin Richards, are sent into another dimension, but with the Negative Zone technology in hand. They try to fend off the creatures there as they uh, await uh, rescue from the team uh, so that they can go back go back home. With Spiral in custody, the Thing and Johnny Storm want to hold May, but Franklin vouches for her, allowing her to leave with no questions asked. May hastily makes her way to her father's ceremony, but she's already too late. The comic ends with May, or rather with uh, MJ and May, walking away from each other in frustration. To be continued. So once again, yes. I'm, I'm dropping the onus on you. Um, why don't you take the lead on this? Uh, what What did you think of this issue? Because I've got a fair amount to say. Uh, I think I think it's interesting that they, first off, they're trying to establish that M2 universe as a cohesive universe, much like they did in the early days of the Marvel universe. It strikes me that the first team that Spider-Man crossed over with was the Fantastic Four. Yes. In, uh, uh, I guess it was his first issue. Uh, Spider-Man number one, good issue too. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I thought oh, that was neat. It's again, a little sisterhood with that book. Uh, also the opening panel of May in the uh, the splash page at the beginning of the issue mm -hmm. shows May sitting at the table and it cast shadow cast on the wall is a spider-man shadow that is ditko that is nothing but ditko right there yes may shadow being a spider person that's ditko uh so i love this uh the again high school drama is interesting it is resolved in a different way than it normally would be uh it is classic uh marvel characters having a misunderstanding the um the spiral guy mm-hmm he comes across to me, uh, and I cannot remember the guy's name. Are you thinking of Wilford Brimley, perhaps? No, I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> no, there was a uh, there was a, a a basically like the fox or something. Oh, who am I thinking of? I, I'm going to be honest with you, man. I, I really don't know. Okay, because when I first saw him, I thought, well, hey, this is like an aged up. Well, not aged up, because he was already aged up. Uh, it's like the fox. He was, a, he was a burglar. He was a cat burglar. Are you sure his name wasn't Diabetes? Diabetes, yes, that was it. No? Okay. 
Yes, Diabetes. That was the name of it. And uh, <laughs> it wasn't actually played by Wilford Brimley, but rather Ed Asner with a fake mustache on. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, no. okay. I can see that. None of this is true. None of this is true. <laughs> well, um, no, I'm not really sure who that character is, but um, I don't really have a whole lot of criticisms of May as a character in general. But in this issue, I actually do have a little bit of a quibble, and it actually relates to Spiral. Basically, dude comes out of the portal. He wants to steal the magic glowing device of doom so that he can go home. It doesn't look like he's intent on harming anybody or endangering anybody, unless I'm missing something. Yes, sorry, go ahead. (laughs) So, um, and yet for for no real reason, we could chalk this up to a rookie mistake perhaps, but for no real reason, Spider-Girl just intercepts him and starts a fight over something that, I mean, let's face it, this could be something that the Fantastic Five is willing to help Spiral with if he would just ask. And it's mm-hmm. like, there's an argument, and I know, maybe I'm overthinking this, but there is an argument that maybe this didn't really need to turn into a fight. Now, it's a comic book, it's a superhero yes. comic, so you got to have fights. So, but it's just, it's one of those things that they, the Fantastic Five clearly had, um, at least the potential to to help spiral uh, in a meaningful way and to help him get back home. And it just, it, it kind of makes you wonder, you know, was this intentional characterization on DeFalco's part that maybe May turned this into a crisis when it didn't really have to be, you know, that it, it's like Ben Kenobi says, there are alternatives to fighting sometimes. Mm-hmm. So why, so, you know, it, would there have really been any harm done and just tapping him on the shoulder saying, look, you can do that if you want, but tell you what, why don't we go upstairs? We can talk to the fantastic five. I bet they'd be willing to help you out. What do you say? And, you know, I don't know. Maybe I'm just, maybe I'm misinterpreting I, this, but. I think I'd throw a lot of it off on her newness too, though. Yeah. Uh, and her eagerness to prove herself. Remember last issue, she had a guy at every step of the way taunting her and telling her she wasn't good enough to do this. Yeah. So I could see where some, eh, maybe, uh, maybe she's, she's motivated to get out there and kick some butt because everybody's telling her, you know, and this, and this weird dark devil guy is telling her she can't do it and she needs to stay home. Yeah. By the way, it was black Fox. I was talking about this. Have you seen black Fox? Uh, negative. No, look him up, look him up. Uh, he physically strongly resembles this spiral guy, probably okay. too strongly. Where's my phone? I'll give it a look. First appearance, Spider-Man 255. Okay. All right. Uno momento civil play. I am bringing it up right now. Let's see. And it's about black Fox. You say? Yeah. yeah. 255. Okay. Oh, yes. Okay, I can see that. Yeah, kind of like Latter-day Black Fox. Yeah. When I saw him first in the issue, I went, whoa, Black Fox is here. And then, of course, it turned out to be nothing like it. But uh, physically, he's very, very, very strikingly similar to him. Yeah, I, I might have said uh, mustachioid uh, Dick Van Dyke. But, yeah, this is yeah. – I can I, I can definitely <laughs> – I can definitely see the uh, – yeah, I, I think I understand where you're coming from. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Sure. Um, 
Now there is a moment that uh, that May has with with uh, Phil Urich, and I was I was reading this today. It's like every time I read this series, I always have to make the same connection organically in this issue. It's like, oh yeah, so this really is Phil Urich from that short-lived uh, Green Goblin title from I want to say 1995, and this is the same guy, you know. Yeah. And the the thing about it that um that kind of works for me is I actually read. Uh, several of those issues. My memory of it is oh. those issues of a uh, Green Goblin. That I think was my first exposure to the uh, to the art of Scott McDaniel. I loved it then, and God knows, love it now. And um, I now I don't think this was the official beginning of McDaniel's career. The first thing I'm aware of him doing is Daredevil, but. His style was very transitional at that time, whereas by the time he started doing Green Goblin, he'd kind of settled into the more familiar style that we all know today. And this was the first time I'd seen any of his stuff. So I basically followed that Green Goblin title. The, you know, it, it's not that it was a great comic. It was good. But man, that art was just something else. And I kind of like the fact that the Green Goblin or the good Goblin, he was basically being recast as a as a hero of sorts. And I thought that was kind of a brave thing to do in this brave new world of yes. the post Peter, arguably this was intended to be post clone saga, but then it ended up getting kind of appended to the clone saga. This was basically Ben Riley taking over as Spider-Man and he was going to make a very different kind of you. What you're supposed to assume reading those issues is that, Ben Riley is going to have a very different relationship with this Green Goblin than yeah. Spider-Man has traditionally had with Green Goblins throughout history, you know? And yeah. it's funny you mention all of that, too, uh, because when you were talking about whether Peter would have wanted to be Spider-Man and you said the answer was no, uh, the Ben Riley situation right there out of the Clone War uh, is... A Clone Saga, excuse me, I Star Wars it up there. Uh, it's, it's a great example of, of the fact that you're right, and that is given the opportunity to go and start a new life, Peter says, fine, here, take it. I'm out. Yeah. And, um, you know, that was a, a, a story beat that I guess somebody wanted to have happen. It, You know, I mean, look, there's an entire tangent that we could go in, an entire separate episode that we could go into as far as the Clone Saga is concerned. But one of the things that they that they promised at the time, I remember this being a huge talking point. I think even Dan Jurgens was out there cheerleading this was the Clone Saga and specifically the, the that short-lived um, series of Scarlet Spider titles that were coming out. Yeah. That was basically meant to be kind of an introduction to this character and this world for new readers. And the idea of it was if you knew nothing else about Spider-Man, you could start reading these issues. We'll tell you everything you need to know. Yeah. We're going to set up an entirely brand new status quo. And there were instances when that, let's face it, that was just simply not true. But that Green Goblin stuff with Phil Urich, yeah, that was absolutely true. This was a whole new status quo. You know, veteran readers and new readers alike were both being introduced to this character at the same time. And it seemed... This was my sense of the Spider-Man titles of that time. It wasn't necessarily that the future was bright, but it had potential. Does that seem right to you? Yeah, absolutely. 
And then, of course, whatever happened, happened. And Peter was back in the books just a couple of years later. But at the time, it did seem like this was a this was a permanent thing. Yeah. And um, when, when sales dwindle, that's they have to put Peter Parker back in Spider-Man. Yeah. And then probably fire whoever thought this up in the first place. But uh, well, there's a I'll tell you, there is. And I, it's, I'll tell you, honestly, I would love to hear a podcast with you doing it. Somebody blogged about this a while back uh, and wrote an in-depth history. Oh, like O'Reilly saga. Right? Uh, is that what it was? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And uh, Glenn Greenberg. I think yes. Was... Yes. That's yes. That's the one. That's the one. And uh, it's amazing all that they went through to get to where they got, and and took a simple little story and just turned it into something it should never have been. Yes. Well, and you know the. It's one of those things that it's like it's easy to criticize now, but what that Life of Riley blog said was, look, you can criticize the Clone Saga all day long if you want, but here's the thing. Those comics were selling during the Great Comic Recession of 93, 94, going into 95. They were selling when other things were not. So it's like this is this is how people are getting paid, supporting their families, you know, and all this sort of stuff basically at the time of the great comic implosion of uh, of the 90s. And it's like, that still doesn't make it okay, but at least now, now I understand, you know? And yes. so I can be a little bit more forgiving because uh, don't we all want to take care of our families? I mean, come on, you know? So, um, but I really appreciated even now, you know, reading this, reading this issue today that that brief long forgotten green goblin comic was still validated by this series and you know it's it's clear he's not the green goblin we're not we're not going to revisit that but that did happen and this character is he's here and he's got something to say and something to contribute and i for one appreciated that so yeah and as and as i and as i said earlier um what the hell did I say earlier? You said this thing earlier. <laughs> Sorry, I was looking. I was looking at the next thing I was going to say, and I forgot what I was going to say there. Ah, that's frustrating. <laughs> See, that didn't happen to me on the radio show, just on uh, on your podcast. Well, uh, we break the mold here every day. So I tell you what, <laughs> I, I'll I'll fill the silence a little bit and maybe give you some time okay. to re recover okay. your train of thought. Okay. okay. Um, one of the things that became very apparent to me. And honestly, this is something I've been going through for the last few months leading up to now, so just bear that in mind. Um, the the older I get, the less I buy Peter and MJ as a happily married couple. Now, I understand that the entire context for this Spider-Girl series is that the spider marriage is real. It happened. And this is, I mean, literally, this is how May came about into the world. Yep. Um, but... This is one of those things where, you know, like I say, just like the older I get, the more I kind of have to acknowledge to myself that the loyalty that I used to have to the spider marriage, it was 100% nostalgia. And it had nothing to do with uh, uh, established characterization or plausibility or anything like that. I don't know whose brilliant idea it was to pair those two up, but I really don't buy it. And I especially don't buy it as this issue unfolds because... I don't know. There's like a spiritual kinship that I think Peter would have with May, kind of suspecting the 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 
decisions that she's that, that she's making in this issue. And the thing is, I cannot convince myself that MJ would accept that that life from Peter, and she certainly would not accept it from from May. And it's honestly of everything about Spider Girl, the one thing I don't buy is MJ's participation in it. Oddly enough, interesting. Uh, I see. I don't go there because I'm an old school romantic. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I think you are too, but uh, for whatever reason, it's not, it's not hitting on your cylinders on this one. But for me, <laughs> I love it when couples that are meant to be together wind up together. Um, I, I, I know that that's not supposed to be what you, you're supposed to like. You're supposed to like the curveball and the subversion of expectations. Uh, but I, I like it when the girl, the guy pines for wind up with the guy. I just do. It's uh, and Spider-Man's one of those things, you know, Jane, Mary Jane is because uh, there's no Gwen Stacy. Mary Jane is his girl, the one he's supposed to be with, and that's the way I always see them. It's it's one of the reasons, one of many reasons I got frustrated with Dawson's Creek at some point. It was because they clearly set up during the first season that Joey and uh, Dawson are supposed to be the thing, and then all of a sudden it's Joey and Pacey for the rest of the time. Yeah. That's not right. That's wrong. And uh, I, I, I don't, I don't draw anything good from that. Seeing star-crossed lovers, and then all of a sudden they're turned into something totally different. Uh, so I, I, I'm always happy in an existence where Peter and MJ are married. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I'm one of those guys that wish they hadn't undone it in the regular series. Uh, I remember what I was going to say earlier, by the way. It was just, it was just that again, just going to reiterate that as you talked about the Green Goblin thing, there are so many concepts that they took and took them to this logical, futuristic extension. And again, they wound up redeeming a lot of concepts and ideas in the clone saga as Spider-Girl went on, which I, which I, again, I didn't think anybody could do for me, but they did. Hmm. <clears throat> well, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, the, um, uh, you know, on the subject of developing existing concepts and whatnot, honestly, for me, the, the, the standout, element of this issue is it's got to be the fantastic five and not just the fact that there are five of them but number one franklin is part of the team um yep. number two uh the ever-loving thing uh ben Grimm. he's got like the robo arm or something yep. uh johnny storm is apparently mature enough that he's now the official uh, team leader and reed richards is literally a big brain Big brain. And brain. That's right. The that may seem like no big shucks these days, but guys, I mean, look, you got to understand the amount of growth, change, um, maturity that is implied and very often shown, but certainly implied in the Spider Girl concept. I would say, you know, you've got things like Dark Devil, the Fantastic Five. This is again, this is Defalco. He's not playing t- uh, touch football. I mean, this. If any of these concepts don't work, I mean, for all intents and purposes in the M- in the M2, they're kind of ruined. And yeah. to me, every single one of these things is is a home run because deep down inside, in a place that we don't talk about at parties, you know, we all know that change, real, lasting, substantive, and entertaining change in comics is an elusive is that's an elusive thing, you know, it happens sometimes, but it, it, it's pretty. 
No, in, in fact, um, I used to subscribe to a magazine called Right Now. It was Danny Fingeroth's magazine. You remember Danny Fingeroth? Yeah, he was uh, a Marvel editor, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, Right Now was a magazine about the writing of comics. And one thing that was always expressed in the interviews they did in that is that the, the ongoing comic series is supposed to create the illusion of change without any real change. Yes. So when you see yourself in a situation where you have these characters that you've been with for a long time and there has been real honest-to-goodness change, uh, there's a couple of things here. One, it is bold and daring to try it. Two, it better work. It better be good or else you will reject it outright. Uh, yeah. and, and DeFalco nails it. And the more you learn really about the Fantastic Five and how things came to be the way they are, which he, they do eventually explain over time, uh, I think maybe in the Fantastic Five's title, I don't remember where they explained it all. Maybe it was in Spider-Girl. Uh, but it it makes sense. It's it's so well done. It's contained within that universe. Um, it is. And, you know, that's, that's something that I like about it. You know, and honestly... I, I think a, a a huge part of my fixation for this for this title is um, it's actually to do with May herself because as I was re rereading specifically this issue today, you know, it, one of the things that became very apparent to me is that um, okay, first let, let me just start by saying this: all of these stupid little labels that get associated with all these different generations, guys, that is a media thing. Okay, it really is. <laughs> Having said that, you know, May is a millennial. And as a millennial myself, you know, the I, I was in high school at this time. You know, uh, mm -hmm. I didn't exactly have the exact same experiences that May's having. But, you know, the general, I don't, the, the context in which she's going to high school, you know, what the country was like in the late 90s. Mm-hmm. I remember that, you know, I lived it. And this, you know, you, you change a few names, you change a few faces. This is more or less, you know, high school that I think a lot of people my age and younger experienced. And well, sorry, I, well, I was just well, I don't while I don't disagree with that, I do also think that it tiptoes a line between being very contemporary and being very universal. Yes. I mean, I didn't have a problem relating to the high school experience either. And I'm an old man. <laughs> well, yeah, fair enough. Uh, now, if you don't mind my asking, if this is too personal, I, I understand. You don't have to answer. But um, when did you graduate from high school? Like what year? Uh, 1874. 1874. Yeah. All right. So many, many changes uh, yeah. have uh, happened. There were a lot since... of changes. Yeah. yeah like... we, did, we didn't have pence per se you know like they did in spider girl but uh or, or lockers we actually had to build a locker every year out of wood chop a tree down and make the locker um but you know things have changed as you say uh and spider girl would have a bustle on in in my era so yeah. there is that I, I would have thought she'd graduated by fourth grade you know because after yeah, that what, what do you need yeah. to teach teach girls right so. well well, yeah, and beyond that, I mean, you're going to live to 32 anyway, so what's the point? But, uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, what, the, what the hell was your question again? <laughs> uh, what year did you graduate from? Oh, 88. I graduated in 88, the year before your life was tra transformed. 
Oh, really? Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah, no, that was the year, almost exactly a year before my life was transformed forever. Yep. Yeah, no. Okay. 13 months before your life was transformed forever. All right, well, then, I mean, again, this kind of speaks to the fact that you and I had a kind of almost just separated by like 10 or 12 years there. But yeah, you and I did kind of walk sort of a parallel journey. I mean, wow, almost exactly 10 years. So, uh, all right. Well, it's just like um, the reason I ask is because, you know, except for the fact that you don't have people that are talking about South Park and downloading MP3s, which was all anyone was talking about after a certain point during my illustrious high school career. You know, one of the things that, you know, that, that I just appreciated about this is that I recognize the fashions you know, um, in uh, the first issue, May is bouncing off the walls in her bedroom, and there's a Cranberries poster on on the wall. And I, obviously, oh. you know, I love the Cranberries. Well, that's got to take even more emotional significance now. Yeah, yeah, it really does. Um, you know, actually, it, it is kind of a funny thing, though. For the longest time, I hate to say it, I disavow it as I say it, but for the longest time, everything that I knew about the Troubles. It all came from that song, Zombie. You know, I didn't know anything else about it except for that. It's like, yeah, a bunch of bombs and shit. Okay, I guess I got this. But then you actually watch that movie, Michael Collins, and you're going to find out just how much you never, or at least I never knew. I mean, I don't know, maybe it was a bit more uh, relevant uh, subject, you know, in headlines whenever you were younger. But that was just not a relevant issue by the time I was in high school. I mean, basically all of that trouble had gone away. And so... We would just see a bomb on the nightly news, like an IRA bomb. There you go, done. <laughs> okay. And that was it. I mean, we didn't. They didn't. There wasn't a lot of going into the, the concept, of the of the, conflict there. It was just kind of. Oh, by the way, a car blew up today. IRA. Okay, got it. Well, and and the way I try to explain this to, um, and I do have a couple of European listeners, and the way I try to explain this to them is like, look, guys, you, you got you got to understand something, okay? I live in Texas, okay? Uh, There is not a square inch of territory anywhere in this state that some guy at some point in history didn't fight, bleed over, and die on, okay? We've got a pretty fucking deep history here. And so just to talk about that takes, uh, that that is a one-year curriculum. And we're still only hitting the high points. That's one-year curriculum in uh, Texas public education, okay? So do the math. you do the founding of uh, of the United States. Yeah, there were these 13 original colonies. Oh, and by the way, this is the year that Texas joined, and here's a year's worth of study. Okay, we stopped talking about Europe after a certain, basically, I guess, around the time of the revolution, the American Revolutionary War, because we've got so fucking much history that we've got to study for here that, you know, there comes a point that we just don't have time for this anymore. So pretty much after about the 18th century, Unless you do some kind of independent study on your own, we just don't touch upon that European history quite as much. And so stuff like, um, you know, this one, this one guy, Michael Collins, bringing the British Empire to their knees. I mean, we don't learn that in our schools because it, I'm not trying to be disrespectful to anybody. It's not relevant to what we're doing. It's about as yes. relevant to uh, a... Uh, a, a Texan high school student learning this stuff as it is to this podcast, even though we're talking about it anyway. So clearly I'm a big hypocrite. <laughs> so uh, point is, I love the cranberries. So, okay. um, yeah. So, uh, and that's, I mean, honestly, there's, again, I can mine for gold on these things all day long, but uh, at the end of the day, we do need to pull the plug. Now, do you have any parting shots for this or anything you want to, you want to hash through? 
I do like again the conclusion of the issue sets up a. a it, it's hard to say because we, we've been through this several times where I've said she's not Peter Parker, she's not Peter Parker, she's not Peter Parker. But being Spider-Man or being a Spider person and being a teenager does bring certain problems, obstacles, difficulties into your life. And at the end of this issue, she is faced with one of those and it's the first time she's faced it. And the great thing about this moment is it's, first off, it's illustrated in classic Ditko fashion with this kind of ghost spider girl pushing Mary Jane and May apart. Um, But it's also, it's fun to read because it is not the first time we've been through this. It's not the hundredth time we've been through this, but it is the first time she's been through this. And MJ, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I love the way the issue closes. I do as well. It's one of those things that, honestly, a good... it The ending... Like, ending a... a uh, and if... Again, I want to get you, I, I want to get your input on this. But if you ask me, in, in terms of serialized comics, the final page, writing a good final page, is a lost, or at least dying, art. Yes. I'm willing to give uh, Kirkman... Uh, a, a pass on this but a lot of times what a lot of writers seem to want to do when they write a last page is oh gotta have a cliffhanger gotta have a cliffhanger mm-hmm. and there is no cliffhanger here um, obviously the story continues I mean we know this instinctively just because if I look at my app you know this is issue 3 there is an issue 4 yep. but at the same time um, you know that there are unresolved conflicts there are unresolved uh, uh uh, uh, character dynamics that are going on here. There's more story to tell, but this is not ending in, in, in some kind of peril or, or some kind of a nail-biter. This ends on a very, I would say, very emotional kind of note. And again, leave it to DeFalco to get the balance of this last page just right. Guys, again, it's not just anybody who can do this. Okay, triple underline that part. Not just anyone is capable of writing a final page in such a way that's not a cliffhanger, but still makes you want to instantly read the next issue. Okay, that's talent. And I, I just, I, 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 again, maybe it's fanning DeFalco's balls a little bit too much, but I, I want to make sure that, you know, he gets he gets some recognition for that. So whatever you want to do with that. Yeah, yeah, he, <laughs> the thing is, if you care about these characters, and if their situations are clearly defined and uh, dramatic and relatable you want to come back and that's exactly what he does over and over again in this title and this is just a, the, the first of many examples yeah well I, I agree and um, so I guess finally after all these years we can finally say that women in comics that mega series I launched is finally complete <laughs> So, now, at some point, and again, this could be Famous Last Words or, or instigating yet more podcasting debt, I would like to bring you back to talk to uh, talk about another maybe two or three issues at some point in the future, um, but uh, maybe that's best discussed in the future, at least in the here and now. I'm not a, usually here is where I'd have you, you know, hype up, you know, the other podcasts and stuff that you're doing. There uh, is some stuff to talk about, and there's also... Well, there's not a whole lot to talk about, but um, what irons do you have in the fire uh, podcasting and broadcasting-wise? Why, yes, Trentus, I will gladly accept your invitation to do more Spider-Girl issues in the future. Now, (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> put that out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are wrapping up Dinner for Geeks. Um, I don't want to, but the more I've started delving into these older issues, or, or older episodes, and pulling them out, out and really going over the dynamics of everything, we have to. It, it has to end. Now, that having been said, uh, we're going to get to the final... The next episode is going to be called Wedding, and it's going to be Jeff uh, his wedding. And I actually was... I was the best man in the wedding, but what everybody didn't know is that I sneaked a recorder into my pocket. Hmm. And so I actually captured the wedding itself and uh, captured the vows <laughs> and everything. So that'll be the next episode. Then after that, we're going to kind of do D4G exit interviews. Uh, I've already conducted an exit interview with Jeff. I'm going to sit down with Ryan. Uh, if Ron is speaking to me, I will conduct an exit interview with Ron. Um, Steve Glosson will conduct my exit interview. And, and uh, then we'll call it a day. But I don't want to 100% say a day will be called on it. And the reason I say that is because I think I may, after all of this, have located a few more episodes that I didn't release. Hmm. All right. So... Uh, there's that uh, my Star Wars story is a thing that happens when it happens I still love it to death and of course I'm on uh, 1440 WGIG now on 98.7 FM um, where we've already made our year which I'm <laughs> about two weeks ago apparently we hit our year's goals financially uh, so we're, we're cleaning that up yeah um, we're number one in the mornings across every demographic and uh, that show is in a podcast form now on the iHeartRadio app. Just search for Scott Ryan and it'll be there. All right. Awesome. Yeah. Well, uh, Scott, uh, number one, thank you very much for coming. And number two, uh, I apologize for making you wait for so long. But honestly, I think this episode turned out a little bit better than it might have if we'd rushed through it before. So, um, you know, maybe some things happen the way that they need to happen, kind of like sunsetting a certain podcast that we don't need to talk about. So um, (laughs) anyway, uh, but that's uh, that's basically uh, it for, you know, these these two. uh, Well, I guess technically what we've talked about at this point is actually three issues, but certainly for for this episode, these uh, two issues that we're supposed to talk about now getting into next week. you know, and speaking of famous last words, it seems like every time I release a a series of episodes that are designed to tie in with a movie, you can generally expect that that movie is going to suck or it's going to tank at the box office or in some other way, this is going to come back to haunt me and really become a, just a fucking embarrassment for me personally. So uh, I'm tempting fate once again because we've got a... <clears throat> a uh, Joker movie that's coming up that I at least am excited for and can't wait to see. And so in relation to that, I'm going to be releasing, it's not going to be anything massive, but just four episodes of Trinus Magnus Punches Reality, Batman versus Joker stories, or at least ones that I personally really enjoy and really love and have never talked about before. Ah. Honestly, that's kind of a small sort of sort of list. So anyway, but that's that's going to be starting starting next week. So I guess something to look forward to. There, or at least it's planned to start next week. I'm sure. We'll, I guess we'll see what happens. But at least right now, that you know, that's the ambition. But uh, that's all next week. So I think that's pretty much it for me this week. So bye, everybody. I will see you next week. Hey, oh. that was good. <laughs> no, that was a lot of fun.
Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find this show on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. My Facebook group is the only official place where you can find everything that has anything to do with this show. The reason for that is because I despise Twitter. Pretty much everything about Twitter sucks. So join the Facebook group today. Speaking of Facebook, you can friend me just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trennismagnus at gmail.com. But remember, all feedback and correspondence emailed to me will be read on mic unless you request otherwise. So, if your email isn't intended for public consumption, don't forget to say so. Otherwise, I'll assume that you want your correspondence to be heard by my dozens, and dozens, of fans across the world. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Since we're on the subject of feedback, Trentus Magnus Punches Reality can be found on iTunes just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. Won't you take a moment to rate my show on iTunes? That helps new listeners find the show. And just in case you don't think that I've given you enough shit to click on just yet, you can sponsor my show simply by going to twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the PayPal button, donate any amount at all, specify that you're sending Magnus some monetary love, and you will be an official sponsor of my show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy. And there's no minimum donation. Be a Trennis Magnus show sponsor today. I don't have a Patreon. Because if you think that I hate Twitter, boy, just wait till you hear what I think of Patreon. So, if you want to throw some bucks my way, the Two True Freaks PayPal link is the way to do it. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law. Some assembly required. Batteries not included. Many will enter. Few will win. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trinus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus... Media Enterprises Limited Production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy. <laughs>